another inspiring message from Pastor John Cameron, Senior Pastor of Arise Church in New Zealand. We know this message will encourage, inspire and empower you. Diminishing doubt. Diminishing doubt. James chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 5. If you're there, shout yes. James chapter 1 and verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. When my daughter Lara, who turned 10 yesterday, was maybe about seven years old, she's telling me now she's a, a teen, a, a teenager, is that right? A teenager. She's now a teenager because she's 10 years old. But when Lara was about maybe seven years old, I went on a trip to the United Kingdom and I did a two-week tour. We went around a whole lot of different places all around the UK doing a leadership tour with my friend Glenn Barrett. We had a couple of days off and so as you do over there, we jumped on a plane and went over to Paris and spent two days as two heterosexual men in Paris together sharing a hotel room in a hotel that literally had lavender walls. It was an awkward moment, but we had a, we had a great time together. We'll always have Paris. <laughs> it was an awesome trip, and I came back home, and fortunately, uh, three years ago, iPhones were already out, and so I've always been a terrible photo taker, but now with an iPhone and an iPad, you're pretty set pretty quickly. And so I came home, synced up my iPhone with my laptop, synced up my iPad with my laptop, grabbed the photos of the trip, and I sat down with Lara and went through all of the photos. I said, here you go, Lara, this is me in London, that's Big Ben, that's Buckingham Palace, this is Glasgow in Scotland, this is where your great-grandfather was born and raised, that's why your dad has ginger hair, that and the fact that it's a sign of God's favoritism. Um, you know, this is us in Manchester. This is Old Trafford Football Stadium. This is Etihad Stadium where God's favorite team, Manchester City, play their, their football matches. Every Bible-believing Christian said amen. This is, uh, this is Paris. This is the Louvre. This is the Champs-Élysées. This is the Musée d'Orsay, Julian's favorite art gallery where they have all of Monet's watercolors. And this is, this is all these photos. And I showed her photo after photo after photo after photo of some of the world's, I guess, most historic and important locations, photo after photo after photo after photo. And this little seven-year-old kid is so awed by what she has seen that she kind of looks up at her dad and she says to me these words, and I'll never forget them as long as I live. She says, Daddy, can I go there one day? And it struck me as Lara asked me that question that the premise of her question was not in her own ability. My seven-year-old daughter was not saying, you know, do you think, Dad, I could save enough money? Do you think I could, you know, get my own passport? Do you think, Dad, that I'd be, you know, as a blonde girl, even able to go unaccompanied to the other side of the world? She's not asking me those questions about resources, means, abilities, whether, whether it's possible. She's simply asking her father a simple yes or no question. She's saying, Dad, you are my dad. You decide what I can and cannot do in life. So I'm asking you a question. 
Can I go there one day? I answered her and said, yes, you can go there one day, Lara. And look at me, because you can go anywhere you want to go. You can do whatever you want to do. And it struck me about life that when it comes to what we are believing to do, that this, this little girl is looking at her father and she's saying, I have no questions about the character or the ability of my earthly father. Now that that trust, that confidence that Lara has in me is based partly in her naivety as a child. But you know what? You and I, as Christian believers, have a heavenly Father. And there is no need for naivety in our belief in Him. He is able to do whatever He wants to do. He lacks no talent. He lacks no supply. And He is looking for people who are going to have the kind of confidence in His ability that says, God, you can do whatever you want to do. If there is a uniting attribute of those that have done great things for God, it would be the way that they viewed the God that they did those things for. I mean, when you think about David, the fact that David was able to descend into a valley, a nation of fighting men, 800,000 people probably in the army, and all of them too frightened to face a giant by the name of Goliath. But one teenager knew something, not about his own talents, not about his own ability, but about the God that he was representing. So he descended into that valley and he said to Goliath, you come against me, you look pretty impressive. You got a massive shield, you got a great spear. I mean, you're tall, you look pretty cool. You come against me with short sword, shield, and javelin. Say that three times quickly. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. In other words, my ability is not what's dependent here. My God can do it, and I am here on His behalf. Elisha walks up to the waters with Elijah's cloak in his hand. And at the opening hours of his journey as Israel's prophet, he lifts the cloak to the sky and he says, where now is the Lord God of Elisha? And he struck the waters and they parted. Not because Elisha was mighty, but because of the God that he was representing. And for you and me in our lives, it seems to me that everything about the way we live is going to come back to the appreciation we have of the ability and of the character of the God that we are worshiping. This passage this morning is an amazing passage and it jumps off in verse five and it says about a problem. It says, if any of us lacks wisdom, it begins with a lack, with a problem. And it says, if any of us lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. In other words, the first point we should go to when something's not going right in our lives is to our God. And the reason for that is because whatever we are lacking, our God is our supply. Can somebody shout yeah in this room? You, well, you, you could try. Can anybody shout yeah in this room? Coming on across, across the bleachers, across the, the section of people across, you know, behind the camera, guys. Can I get a yes from up there? That was pretty convincing, actually. That was very impressive. I think they might even be louder than the floor section this morning. Floor section, can I get a yes from you guys? Yes. Well, that was actually, I think, I think you guys deserve a second chance because they kind of lifted the barometer right there. I mean, I, I, I don't want to, but, but, you know, I, I thought balcony, you were here, and then floor section, they just kind of, they took it to here. So let's give you a chance to redeem yourselves 
Okay, everybody, everybody across the balcony, if you're on a raked seat, if your seat is higher than the person sitting in front of you, can I get a yeah? yeah. Oh man, I'm telling you, it's, it's hard to decide who the winner is this morning, but whatever we are lacking, God is our supply. Okay, the floor definitely won then. I'm just saying, they were quicker with it, you know. Whatever we are lacking, God is our supply. Okay, that's good. We're into it now. The Bible says, My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches that are in glory. Again, our, our confidence in God's ability to supply is not based on how desperate our situation is, but based in the fact that His ability to supply is limited according to His riches that are in glory. And because His resources, His riches are infinite, His supply is limitless. So it doesn't matter what's going on in my life, what I am lacking, when everybody, somebody is lacking something, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He, let him ask, because God has the ability to meet whatever need we have in our lives. Can you get an amen to that one? But our God, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without finding fault. Man, that is one of the most encouraging phrases in all of the scripture. Who gives to all. Who gives to all. In other words, he gives to everybody. He's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't have a precious few that he wants to help out. And a lot of people who should just, you know, really have no confidence in whether God cares about them or not. If you've seen God supply for somebody else, then the same God wants to supply you as well. Who gives to all. He gives to everybody. He's not a regarder of an individual. He has no special few who can be confident in His provision and others who should doubt it. What He's done for one, He wants to do for all. Amen? Amen. Who gives to all generously. I love that word. Man, this comes back to the very nature of our Jesus, our God, is that the God of the universe is in character, indeed a generous God. I don't know about you, but I'm glad He's not a stingy God. <laughs> you are. I mean, we are, aren't we? we? We like to measure things out. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm, I'm no good at cooking. I, I can't cook to save myself. And you need to pray for me because Jillian's going away for nine days. She's been talking about it, though, for the last three months. I think she's going to come back and find our children have joined the World Vision Sponsorship Program. <laughs> she's quite concerned about it. But, you know, um, yeah, it's possible. But... No, no, they're just going to have a lot of takeaways. But, but um, I order great. When it comes to food preparation, I'm the king of the dial-up. You, you name it. I, I know it, you know. I've got them all on speed dial. But when it comes to cooking, I'm not good. And the reason why is because, you know, if you read a cookbook, you know, they, they always ask you for exact measurements. You know what I'm saying? Like, here's your bowl, you've got to have half a cup of whatever. But I'm always the guy who puts the half cup measurement inside the bowl, and then I just start pouring the flour in, and you know, it kind of heaps up and falls over the top, and I'm like, whatever, just whack it on in there. You know, if you're going to be a good one, you've got to, you know, scoop the knife across the top, get the measurements exact. I always put it in, comes back out, and it looks like some distant cousin of the thing that it is supposed to be, 
you know, somehow not quite gone the right way. And that's kind of what our God is like. He's not exacting. He's not specific. If he, doesn't, he doesn't measure out just what we deserve. That's not God. The nature of our God is that He is a generous God. I mean, I mean, He's so generous that Israel find themselves, you know, after 400 years of slavery, they get set free from slavery. You'd think they'd be thankful about that, but no, they just start whining because food is not somehow presenting itself. So God's like, okay, well, you know, I love you. I'm going to provide for you. And so manna just starts appearing every morning. But then that's not enough. They want meat. Now, if I was God, I would be like, well, there's just here's your meat. And give them maybe half, a little quail each, a little taste of meat, enough to kind of get them to close their mouths. But not God. If God does something, He is a generous God. I'm saying to you this morning, He's not just generous in deed. He's generous in nature. Who gives to all generously. And so because he gives to all generously, when he turns, when he causes quail to come into the Israelites' camp, it is so bountiful that it is knee deep. That's the kind of, they're literally like, they cannot move but squash a quail. But God's like that. He pours out knee deep blessings so much that you don't have room enough to contain it. Pressed down, shaken together, overflowing more than enough, abundant supply. Our God is a generous God. Can somebody just pause and give a bit of a clap and say thank you to the God who is generous. Amen. If anyone has a lack, let him ask of God who gives to all generously. And here's the final bit, without finding fault. Amen. That is perhaps the greatest part of this whole sentence. Let him ask of God who gives to all generously without finding fault. He doesn't look at you and me and say, hang on a minute, you know, you know, you're performing a bit better than the other guy. The way we think, the way we're wired to think is to think about faults. Our gravitational pull is towards faults. In fact, when we're ascribing value to anything, the way we attribute the value is by the level of but by the, the amount of perfection that the object has. And that's why gold and diamonds have been for many millennium of human history, the pinnacle of wealth. And the search for the diamond that is the most valuable is the one with the least amount of imperfections. And so we are gener- we're pulled towards a thought that there is fault with everything and the more faults, the lesser the value. And we, as- we assume that the way God feels about us is exactly the same. And man, I've been a pastor long enough to know that even though some people can say, God loves me just the way I am, when they pray, they don't pray like that. We pray thinking that somehow God isn't going to move in this situation because of X, Y, Z. But the Bible says if we lack wisdom, we can ask of God who gives to all without finding fault. It's not like I was stupid yesterday, so therefore God's got no wisdom for me today. Quite the opposite. The reason why Jesus came was because we were sinners, and so we needed salvation. So in the place of our imperfection, Christ is enough. The substance of our forgiveness is Jesus. The source of our faultless standing before God is our Savior. 
And so now when God looks at us, He doesn't look for imperfections. He looks and He sees Jesus. So when we pray, we come to the God who gives to all generously, seeing only Jesus, says there is no reason that I wouldn't pour that kind of blessing back into your life. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm so encouraged by that. But then the second part of this passage, and the crux, I guess, of this message, is the next phrase that says, but when he prays, when he prays, he must believe and not doubt. He must believe and not doubt. And this is the key to our passage. The Bible is saying, if you've got a lack, you can ask of God. We got this right. He gives to all generously. He doesn't find fault. But, but when you pray, you better believe that He answers and not doubt. Because a half of our answered prayer comes from the nature of the God that we're praying to. Like Lara asks her dad, Dad, can I go there one day? Her, her ask is really an ask of whether I can do it and I want to do it. The other half for her willingness to receive my yes as a yes and my no as a no is her, is her belief in whether I am true to my word. And the Bible's saying, when we ask of God, let's list it out. If you've got a lack, ask God who gives to all, every single one of us, generously, over and abundant, without finding fault. But, but, if we doubt whether he's going to do it or not, then the Bible says even though God can do it, he is limited by the willingness or our ability to trust in his power to move on our behalf. Doubt in the heart of the asker will disqualify the, prom the premise of the promise. In other words, we have a reason to doubt our ability. We have a reason to doubt our character. But we have no reason to doubt the ability or the character of the God that we worship. If we do this, then we take God and we diminish down His ability to move on our behalf in our situation. It is the power of diminishing doubt. When doubt is found in the heart of a believer, it is not doubt. Not doubt meaning that our faith is lacking in our faith. And this, I guess, is the confusing part for so many believers when we live in our, our time. I'm a Pentecostal Christian, born and raised a promised, believing, you know, faith person from the time I came into this world. I grew up sleeping in sleeping bag under church rows, hearing that God can do it, that God is big, He heals, He prospers, He restores. But you know, the truth is, church, our faith is not in faith. If our faith is in faith, then David's got a lot of faith and, you know, someone else doesn't. You know, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think of a name that's not on the front row, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's hard to. But, you know, you know, Sarah's got a lot of faith and Sally has none. That kind of scenario. It's not about that. Our faith is not in faith. Our faith is in God. So the Bible says, when you ask, do not doubt. Because it's saying, the God that you're praying to, when you ever lack, Pray to God because He answers. He gives to all generously without finding fault. But if you doubt, not you, if you doubt Him. See, Lara's ability to receive my promise that she will go there one day comes only back to her trust 
in my word and in my ability. Now I'm human, so she probably has a reason to doubt me, but we have no reason to doubt our Jesus because He has the power to do what He has promised. When we doubt, we are allowing something untrue about God to influence the way that we live our lives. And that is the diminishing effect of our doubts. It takes the God that we worship and it reduces down His ability to move in our situation. And make no mistake, the devil would love for every person in this room to believe something wrong about God. And it's true, isn't it? that the effects of our doubt are evidenced in the way that our lives get lived. Because the Bible goes on and says, if you want your prayers answered, ask in faith and do not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Now, if you wanted to describe a nightmare scenario for me, that verse has got it. A wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. I fly in airplanes all the time, nearly every single week of my life. The other day, Levi and I were on a plane and I woke up in the middle of the night on this flight and I looked at my television screen in front of me and it literally said that we were in the air above Afghanistan. I mean, who does that? I mean, you know, we just had this whole Malaysia flight thing. I'm on a plane from Singapore and I know Singaporeans might be upset, but they are neighboring countries. And so here I am. On a flight, in the middle of the night, I wake up and we're in the air over, though we're dangerous, (laughs) Afghanistan. And I'm thinking, what am I doing in the air above Afghanistan? But you know what? It didn't rob me of a moment's peace. But you put me on a boat and you get a few tempestuous waves coming up around me then I want to get out of that scenario as fast as I I mean, you can come into Wellington and have all the turbulence of every landing and I'm, I could sleep through it. It doesn't faze me one bit. But you get some waves rocking, some seas rolling, then I just want to get out of there as fast as I humanly can. It is the picture for me of what fear looks like. And the Bible says that he who doubts, she who doubts, is like a wave of the sea. It invites into our lives feelings that life is happening to us. We are out of control. It is bigger than me. It is stronger than me. I am just being driven by this pressure. This this sickness is determining my life. My lack of resources are going to end me. I can't see a way out of it. And all of the events, that's why I hate the sea. The open water, I like the beach. I'm, I'm all cool with that. But the open water, for me, I don't like the unanswered questions. I'm giving you all of my fears today. This is Dr. Phil. Bring him out. But you know, the truth is for me that you just can't guarantee things on the sea. I don't like that thought. I mean, at least as an airplane has got four engines. I mean, if one goes out, there's still another three. You know what I'm saying? You don't. But anyway, you don't have the same driving fear of the ocean that I do. But you know, this is our problem. We feel like we're at the center and life is outside of our control. And the entrance of our doubt is seen by the fear that we have in the events of our lives. He who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. One time Jesus was with his disciples and they set out from um, a lake one side of a lake, and they went across the other side overnight. So they're doing like an overnight commute. They're catching the night train. And they sit out. Jesus done a full day of ministry. He's tired. So he goes down below deck, and he has a nine-nine. You know, he falls asleep. 
And the Bible says that a storm breaks out in the middle of the night. And in the middle of the storm, I mentioned this on Easter Sunday last Sunday. What an exciting day, by the way. But, um, you know, in the middle of the storm, the storm begins to rage all around them. And you know what? The disciples are not the only people who've ever had a storm begin to rage around them. If we went through a, a show of hands in this auditorium, said, who's had a massive health challenge? Who's had a finance investment not go right? Who's struggled to get a job? Who's questioned the love of the person that they're with? Who's ever, who's ever thought that maybe a child won't come back from some kind of scenario? You might never get the job that's going to take you into your career. I mean, we could go through situation after situation, and everybody here, if they're honest, would say, I've been in a storm in the middle of the night. True? And the Bible says that in the storm, in the middle of the night, and by the way, storms at sea 2,000 years ago were always associated with judgment. And isn't it true that even today, whatever storm is breaking out in our lives, we normally find the basis of that storm in some kind of fault in us. I've been pastorally looking after people for 20-something years of my life, 23 years of my life. And I'm here to tell you that when people go through hell and high water, the question they want clarified is, is it because of X, Y, Z? I did this when I was younger. Is that why I'm going through what I'm going through now? And it's our default. And these disciples in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the night, are going just like with Jonah was in a boat heading to Nineveh, storm breaks out, and they're like, where is the sin on this boat? The disciples are saying, oh my gosh, where is God? What's going on with the storm? Have we somehow disappointed Him? Why is this wrath come upon us? Why are we in the middle of the storm? And you can't live there too long before you begin to attribute that lack of plain sailing to something about the God who we feel allowed us to be in the middle of what we're in. And so Jesus is down below deck. He's asleep. Why? Because you will always be able to sleep through what you have no fear over. The thing that robs us of sleep is the thing that we are fearful of. And so Jesus got no fear. He's asleep. The disciples are freaking out. And then they're like, we're not that bad. We're not really that awful. Why would God allow us to go through this? And so they march down below deck and they say, Jesus, do you not care? See, that's probably the center of our deal, isn't it? Why, why would you let me? Why, why, did my, you know, why did my sibling die? Why, why have I been through this mess? Why, why is my business struggling? Why have I got this health challenge? Don't you care? And the Bible says Jesus comes up above deck. He speaks to the storm and he says, peace, be still. And then he says this, why did you doubt? See, the center of our doubt, the center of our doubt, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? The center of our doubt is not, not, not found. Jesus is not saying, hey, why didn't you guys use your faith? Oh, you have little faith. Why? He's not saying, why did you not use your faith to calm that storm? He's saying, why, why did you doubt that I would care about you in the middle? Why did you not care? He's challenging, why did you, do you not care? Why, they said to him, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to drown? And Jesus says, why did, why did you doubt that I care about you? See, friends, our faith is in him. And this passage is saying, man, if you've got a lack, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. He gives to all generously. He doesn't find fault. But if you doubt, 
then you become like a wave of the sea. And suddenly you feel like events and pressures are the absence of God and you're in it alone and it drives you to and fro and everything about our lives comes back to the constant belief that we have in the character of the God that we worship. This doubt in His character caused the storm to toss their hearts to and fro. And the Bible talks to us, and it says in Romans 10, 9, that with our hearts we believe. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart. Believe in your heart. And when our hearts doubt His presence, is when our fears begin to rule us, and the waves begin to throw us. And God is looking for a people who will not doubt His character, but will place an unwavering belief that God is for me, God does love me, He is present, He does supply. True. And when this begins to grip our lives, it impacts everything about the way that we live. But let them not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Here's the next passage. That man should not expect to receive anything from God. Should not expect to receive anything from God. He is a double-minded, she is a double-minded man, woman, unstable in all they do. See, this is perhaps the power of our doubts personified in the way that we live our lives, is that when doubts rule us, they can literally take the power of God that is available to work in our lives and just diminish it, it down. And we don't always like to think of that. You know, Jesus lived 30 years, then he gets baptized by John the Baptist. The Bible says that while he's standing in the baptismal pool, that, that the Holy Spirit falls on him in that Jordan River. Um, you can, everyone could see it. The voice of the Father speaks from heaven, says, you're my son. And then the scripture says that for 40 days, Jesus is in the wilderness, being tested and approved, you know. And it's amazing to think that sometimes the wilderness seasons of our lives are when God does the most. And then he comes out of the wilderness. And now the Bible says that when he comes out of the wilderness, he's in the power of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to live 30 years in a town where you walked past leprosy? where you saw people with withered hands, where you saw, you saw diseases and knew that in you was the power to heal that scenario, but the time of the Father had not yet come. Imagine, imagine knowing the names, Ivan, Julie, Anna, Anna, Sam, Ray, John, you know, going and knowing the whole town and then being unable to touch the area of their need and then know that now is your yes season. Now you can do it. Now you can heal. Now you're released to go. Where are you going to preach first? Are you going to go to some people that you don't even know about, don't even really have an emotional bond to? No, you're going to go to the people who matter the most to you. And so Jesus turns up in his own hometown for his inaugural sermon. He opens Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, guys. He sent me to set at liberty those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor, to heal those who are sick, you know, to free you of demonic oppression. I have come to tell you that God's not holding judgment over you. There is forgiveness and freedom for every person that is here. You can imagine Jesus as elation, right? Yet the Bible says that they look at Jesus and they question his character. 
Isn't this Joseph's son? And the Bible says in Mark chapter 6, verse 5, he could not do, could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he marveled, he was amazed at their lack of faith. See, and this is the thing. Our God will always be our God. What we think of him changes nothing. And our faith is not in faith. But what God is looking for is for a group of people that regardless, see, you know what? Your heart can doubt, but your spirit can still decide that God is God and it changes nothing about Him, what my emotions try and tell me. And when, when we allow doubt to come into our lives, it takes that limitless power that could have healed every need in Jesus' town. And it brought it down to just a few sick people getting their coughs and colds cured. And he was unable to do many miracles because of their lack of faith. But when a group of people say, hang on a minute, let's, let's look, come back to who you are. When we lack, we come to God. We increase our God awareness. And the reason why we increase our God awareness is because he gives to all, and His ability to give knows no limits because He is supplied by the abundance of heaven. He gives to all generously, meaning that His supply will not even be exact, but will be over and above what I should reasonably expect. And He finds no fault in the person who is asking for it. So if that's our God, then no matter what we face in life, we've got to come to Him expecting that He's going to help us no matter what we face in any situation of our lives. But He needs a heart that will believe. The band are going to come and join me up on stage. Let me tell you a few stories. I mean, how about the one where Lazarus dies? Martha, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, three siblings. Martha, Martha, there must have been some kind of... Uh, of of kind of a widow situation with Martha combined with the fact that mum and dad had passed away. So Martha is now the pseudo parental figure and she's also the one who seems to be the lead among the three. And her younger brother, who's kind of like her oldest child, gets sick. And so she sends word to Jesus who knew Lazarus and says, Jesus, would you come and heal him? Okay. Jesus doesn't arrive and Lazarus dies. Then after Lazarus has been dead for three days, Jesus shows up. And sometimes in our lives, we are exactly like Martha. The disciples are saying, don't you care? And Martha says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I reckon there's a lot of people in this room who know how Martha felt. If you had got here earlier, if you were involved, if you cared. See, everything comes back to God is always who God is. But the devil's, the devil's desire is for you and I to trade the truth about his character for something lesser than, to make him judgmental, absent, exacting, revengeful, not present, uncaring, not desiring to move. This is not true about God. He is always able, always present, always wants to move, never lacks in His ability. He is always there. Martha says, if you've been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus says, in fact, let me read it to you. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered and said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection. Do you see that? He's saying, who am I? Who am I? Not faith in faith, faith in me. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Here it is. Do you believe this? This brings us back. Do you know, perhaps I haven't done an exact study on this, but I've read the Gospels a lot of times. I reckon possibly that one of the most frequently asked questions Jesus asked of people was, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe this, Martha? She said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Lazarus came from the tomb that day. And when doubt does not diminish God, when we say no to the diminishing influence of our doubts and say yes to that voice of faith, he who comes to God, Hebrews eleven six, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. In other words, all our supply is in Him. But we must not only believe that He is a God, but that He is a God who rewards. If you lack, ask of God, who gives to all generously and doesn't find fault. But if we doubt, we can take the God who rewards, the God who answers, the God who is generous, and we can just lift off. Close with the story. Um, two blind men, Jesus was staying in a home and he walks out the door one morning and there's two blind men start following him. They've been stalking Jesus. They were stalkers. And they're shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I don't know what's going on. Maybe people are pushing them away. Maybe people are kind of ignoring them, just kind of hoping that they're going to drift away. But they don't. The whole day they follow Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, we could preach another sermon about why Jesus waited the day. Sometimes we've been crying out and we're like, well, you know, I asked you once. It changes nothing about who he is. How long the answers take, take nothing, change nothing about who he is. And after a day of futile searching and asking, Jesus just walks back into the house. And then he says, let those two guys in. <laughs> Your day's coming. He stands in front of, they stand in front of Jesus. They can't see him. And they says, what do you want? They say, we want our sight. And Jesus asked them a crazy question. He says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Jesus answered in the message translation. And he said, then become what you believe. See, our whole Christian journey is about who God is and becoming more like Him. And when our faith is not in faith, when our faith is in Him, then no matter what good, no matter what bad, at the end of it all, we become more like Jesus and His power is more at work within our lives. I mean, man, we could go on. I've got so much more. Abraham. 
God eyes it, then God asks him to lay it down. But then out of laying it down, he discovered the God who provides. Shadrach, Meshach, and Bendigo said, we, we believe he's good. He's going to help us. He didn't. He threw them in the furnace. But then he turned up in the furnace. And it doesn't matter when he answers. God just wants us when it looks like he's answering, when it looks like he's not answering, to always admit that he never changed. That is what God's looking for from us. And never let diminishing doubt take our Jesus and shrink him down to something less than what he really is. Because our doubts attack the character of the God we worship. And I believe this morning that God is here for every heart, for every life, for you and for me, that we would, we would give him his rightful place in our hearts and our lives as we worship him. Can you stand to your feet together with me this morning? If you would like to find out more about Arise Church and John Cameron, go to arise.org.nz or follow them on Twitter at John Cameron NZ and at Arise Church.